1: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Eight minutes after four o'clock is our time. James Blend is producing today's program. Clark Hilton is engineering. Today in the first hour, we're going to talk with Nate Pyle. He is the author of More Than You Can Handle When Life's Overwhelming Pain Meets God's Overwhelming Grace. What a tremendous formula that is. We'll talk with Nate Pyle about that. By the way, he is a pastor. And in the five o'clock hour, we're going to talk with Tom Jipping. He is the deputy director of the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. He's also a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk about a bill, the Do No Harm Act, as it's so called, that seeks to uh, dilute the substance of religious freedom and essentially gut the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. He'll be joining us in Uh, The five o'clock hour. Taking a look at some of the news stories of the day, Representative Devin Nunez, a Republican out of California, filed a lawsuit against Twitter and some of its users yesterday. Two hundred and fifty million dollars in compensatory damages. 350,000 in punitive damages, accusing the social media site of shadow banning conservatives, including himself, to influence the 2018 elections, systematically censor opposing viewpoints and totally ignoring lawful complaints of repeated abusive behavior. And the congressman says that the lawsuit is the first of many to come. Well, at a campaign event in Ohio yesterday, White House hopeful Beto O'Rourke appeared to punt on the question of third trimester abortions but endorsed a woman's right to the controversial practice less than a month after Senate Democrats blocked a bill that would have required doctors to provide medical care to newborns amid a swirling infanticide controversy in Virginia. Are you for third trimester abortions? An attendee of the campaign event in Cleveland asked O'Rourke before describing the medical alternatives to such a procedure and disputing the medical necessity of late-term abortions. Are you going to protect the lives of third trimester babies? O'Rourke responded, the question is about abortion and reproductive rights and my answer to you is, that should be a decision the woman makes. I trust her. Well, it also has to do with law and what's permitted under the law. He punted. Well, 2020 presidential candidate Elizabeth Warren insisted on Monday that her disputed claims of Native American heritage, for which she later apologized, had no role in her advancement, uh, the advancement of her career during a CNN town hall in Jackson, Mississippi. The Massachusetts Democrat was asked how she responded to critics who said her handling of questions about her heritage was tone deaf, offensive and indicative of a lack of presidential tact. Well, you know, I grew up in Oklahoma. I learned about my family from my family. And based on that, that's just kind of who I am. And I do the um, uh, I do the best I can with it. The senator responded, you know, there was an investigation, nothing I ever did or my family played any role in any job I ever got. End quote. Well, that has been disputed, given the fact that that was mentioned on some of her applications. I'll leave it to you to decide. Uh, For yourself, whether or not to expand the Supreme Court is emerging as a key litmus test in the crowded 2020 Democratic primary field, declares The Hill. Once dismissed as a fringe idea, reforming the nation's highest court is gaining traction with a growing number of Democratic 2020 candidates. As progressives uh, outside um, uh, groups and high profile officials have vaulted the idea into the national spotlight. There is no constitutional proscription on expanding or shrinking the Supreme Court, but the Democrats timely political play is solely for the purpose of further empowering the rule of men. Uh, and while we're on the subject of litmus tests, Senator Elizabeth Warren on Monday called for the abolishing of the Electoral College and moving to a national popular vote for presidential elections. South Bend, Indiana, mayor and fellow Democratic presidential candidate Pete um, Buttigieg uh, has also called for getting rid of the Electoral College, saying earlier this year that it has made the U.S. less and less democratic Senator Bernie Sanders in 2016 called for the reassessment of the Electoral College. Many Democrats uh, uh, controlled states are already subverting Colorado being the latest. Undocumented uh, immigrants who use false Social Security numbers to get jobs would be easier to prosecute under a case the Supreme Court agreed to hear yesterday. The justices will hear Kansas appeal of a lower court decision that the federal government has exclusive jurisdiction over such cases. A ruling the Trump administration agrees should be overturned. Kansas Solicitor General Stephen McAllister stated the victims of identity theft can face devastating consequences. This nationwide, indeed worldwide problem at its consequence are more than the federal government alone can address. And Me Too times two. A second top advisor to Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, who has made advocacy for women and the Me Too movement central to her 2020 Democratic presidential campaign, departed over an allegation of sexual harassment, according to the Washington Examiner, which adds that the... uh, Individual who stepped down in 2017 continued to be paid despite his conduct. He wasn't dismissed and was kept on Gillibrand's staff. He remained on the senator's payroll for about three months after the incident, even though he didn't do any work, one former aide said. Details of the exit emerged after Gillibrand's military advisor was fired for sexually harassing a junior female aide in July of last year. And more fallout from the Supreme Court of the United States narrow ruling in the Jack Phillips case. On Monday, the U.S. Supreme Court refused to hear an appeal from a Christian bed and breakfast owner who was found at a lower court to have violated an anti-discrimination law by turning away a lesbian couple from her establishment. Phyllis Young, owner of Aloha Bed and Breakfast in Honolulu, Hawaii, refused to rent a room to Diane Cervelli and Taco Bufford, and 2007 due to her Christian beliefs with regard to sexuality. While Young pointed to the First Amendment to uh, evidence her protection in practicing her religion without government prohibition, a state uh, court found the business owner in violation of Hawaii's Civil Rights Commission's public accommodation law. And anti-vaxxers, rather, not just an American problem. 11 people have died and more than 30,000 have been infected this year in a major measles outbreak in Ukraine, the European country worst hit by the disease. Kiev said on Monday, some 30,500 people, including 17,000 children, have been infected this year. Authorities said shortages of vaccine in various years and anti-vaccination sentiment, often driven by uh, campaigns online spreading information about the alleged risks, were the main reasons behind that outbreak in the tug of war over the freedom uh, from being coerced to take vaccinations and the necessity of people having them continues right here in the state of Oregon as well. And a bit of dark humor, Nancy Pelosi, any child who somehow escaped both abortion and infanticide has earned the right to vote. Well, on this day in 2003, President George W. Bush orders the start of war against Iraq because uh, of the time difference. It was early March 20th in Iraq. And on this day in 1993, the Supreme Court Justice Byron uh, White announces plans to retire. His departure would pave the way for Ruth Bader Ginsburg to become the court's first female justice. And on this day in 1987, televangelist Jim Baker resigns as chairman of the PTL, Praise the Lord Ministry Organization, amid a sex and money scandal involving Jessica Hahn, a former church secretary. You're listening to the Georgine Rice show.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We are back 20 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. want to remind you that coming up in our next segment, we're going to talk with Nate Pyle. He is the author of More Than You Can Handle When Life's Overwhelming Pain Meets God's Overcoming Grace. Also in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Tom Jipping, Deputy Director of the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. Also Senior Legal Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk about the Do No Harm Bill, relatively innocuous name that would seek to dilute the substance of religious uh, freedom. I also want to let you know about an opportunity that's coming up on April the 5th for you to see a movie that reflects an historic event that really has been lost to many of us. I'm talking about the movie, The Best of Enemies. It is a true story. It's heartfelt. It's timely. It's an untold story. And I think it really resonates today because we are so fractious, for lack of a better word, in terms of those of us who have strong disagreements around political or cultural issues. This is a story of two individuals who could not have been further apart uh, in terms of their worldview. We're talking about an African-American activist, Ann Atwater, and a member of the Ku Klux Klan, C.P. Ellis, who against all odds came together to help initiate change in their community in Durham, North Carolina. It is an inspirational story. It gives you a sense of optimism because today, as we see the nation fractured and groups uh, taking their positions apart from one another, persuasion no longer being the case, you have the opportunity to see... Uh, The events that took place in the lives of these two individuals that not only changed their relationship to one another in the 1970s, but it changed an entire community, a powerful true story, a black female activist. And a, a, um, a Ku Klux Klanman who come together not only to resolve an issue in their community, but to forge a friendship as well. Again, we're talking about The Best of Enemies. It's coming to theaters on April the 5th. Taraji, uh, Taraji Hinson is starring as well as Sam Rockwell. One of their best performances. You don't want to miss it again in theaters on April the 5th. Want to encourage you to make note of it. The Best of Enemies. Coming to a theater near you. Well, the unlikely presidential run of Andrew Yang, who is proposing a one thousand dollar a month freedom dividend to every adult in America, rolled uh, a Friday into San Francisco, where some three thousand supporters listen to the New York Tech entrepreneur warn about how artificial intelligence and robotics are taking jobs. Well, the 44-year-old son of Taiwanese immigrants who met each other at uh, USC or rather UC Berkeley has already surpassed expectations virtually non-existent when he got uh, into the race by inspiring enough donations to qualify for the Democratic primary debate in June. He outlined his idea for guaranteed universal income to a young exuberant crowd of mostly millennials at an Outdoor soccer field lined with food trucks on Mission Bay Boulevard North. He said the idea has not only had wide historical support, including from founding father uh, Thomas Paine, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., and Nobel Prize winning economist Milton Freeman, but it has already been implemented in Alaska, which uses oil revenue to fund it. Now, that's a bit different from what he's proposing, but nonetheless, uh, he has entered the fray seeking the uh, the Democratic Party nomination. Also, Marianne Williamson is famous in uh, that. Uh, she is has been something of a spiritual influencer uh, across the country. Uh, on a recent Sunday in a bright, narrow room in Iowa, Williamson, striking an, uh, at about 66 years old, made the announcement that she intends to be a part of uh, this, uh, Frey Williamson is running for the Democratic nomination for president. She often speaks about spirituality in a way that departs from your average political discourse. She was one of the founders of the New Age movement some years ago. Um, in brief, Brooke Shields, Andre Agassiz, uh, read Williamson's books. Cher attended her lectures. Stephen Tyler has credited her with helping him break an addiction. Bill and Hillary Clinton invited her to Camp Davis. A line of hers about fearing our own strength more than our own powerlessness is sometimes falsely attributed to Nelson Mandela. It was hers. Anyway, this um, uh, new age um, scion is also entering the fray seeking the Democratic Party nomination. So the numbers just keep going up. And these are two new names to add to that list. Meanwhile, the Supreme Court handed the Trump administration a victory today in its battle to clamp down on illegal immigration by making it easier to detain immigrants with criminal records. The ruling that federal immigration authorities can detain immigrants awaiting deportation any time after they've been released from prison on criminal charges represents a victory for the president. In the case before the justices, a group of mostly green card holders argued that unless immigrants were picked Uh, Picked up immediately after finishing their prison sentence, they should get a hearing uh, to argue for their release while deportation proceedings go forward. But in a 5-4 decision uh, today, the Supreme Court ruled against them, deciding the federal immigration officials can, in fact, detain undocumented immigrants at any time after their release from local or state custody. The court also ruled the government maintains broad discretion to decide who would represent a danger to the community in deciding who to release or who to detain. Also, the Supreme Court yesterday agreed to hear a case challenging a law in Kansas and four other states that abolishes a criminal defendant's ability to plead insanity. At the center of the dispute is a Kansas man named Craig Collar who argues his depression was so severe and his mental state was so disturbed when he killed his estranged wife, two of his three kids, and his mother-in-law in in 2009 that he was unable to control his actions. If he had committed his crimes in any of the 46 states or the District of Columbia that recognize an insanity defense, his attorneys argue he would have been able to introduce evidence to show that his mental state caused him to commit the murders. But under Kansas law, a defendant can only show evidence of a mental illness to prove he or she lacked the Required intent to commit murder, regardless of whether the mental illness kept them from knowing their actions were wrong. McCaller argued that under the state's law, even someone who knowingly commits murder because they believe the devil told them that. Uh, uh, to be found guilty, only in a rare case, he said in the court briefs, would a legally insane person actually lack the requisite intent due to a mental defect. Well, Alaska, Idaho, Montana, and Utah all have the same laws. Kansas, which caller argues, is unconstitutional under the Eighth Amendment's ban on cruel and unusual pun- punishment, rather and the Fourteenth Amendment's right to due process. Again, the Supreme Court yesterday agreed to hear that case challenging the law in Kansas and four other states that abolish it. Criminals. Uh, Defendants' ability to plead insanity. And it's it's become a hot topic for the 2020 presidential campaign trail. Several Democratic contenders are talking up plans to overhaul the Supreme Court with some offering proposals to add up to 10 more members. 10 candidates, including Senators uh, Cory Booker, Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, Christian uh, Gillibrand have all signed an openness to overhauling the court. If they become president and progressive groups are putting their money behind the message an effort to tap into lingering liberal anger over president Trump's two nominees confirmed to the high court. <sighs> uh, Neil Gorsuch was conformed after former president Barack Obama's choice. Uh, Merrick Garland languished in the Senate without a hearing or a vote during the 2016 election uh, year Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation process was defined by allegations of sexual misconduct, which riveted the divided nation last year. Both were confirmed mostly along party lines. While the solution, according to many Democrats, well, add more members while changing the rules for who serves and for how long. Now they don't want to change the uh, amend the constitution because that's too difficult. They're kind of doing an in run around that requirement. Among the proposals are rotating justices on and off the bench from the lower appellate courts and imposing term limits for currently life-tenured federal judges. I would like to start exploring a lot of options. Booker said on Monday, term limits for Supreme Court justices might be one thing. Now, I might be with him if you would consider term limits for those sitting in Congress, but that apparently has not made the, the list thus far. South Bend, Indiana, Mayor Pete um, plans uh, has a plan to be a bit more specific. One idea that I think is interesting is you have 15 members, but only 10 of them are appointed in the political fashion. Five of them can only be seated by unanimous agreement of the other 10. Uh, the bottom line is we've got to make some kind of structural form to depoliticize the Supreme Court. Well, there are lots of ways to depoliticize the Supreme Court. I'm not sure any one of those suggestions is the way to go about it. But nonetheless, if that is the goal, um, again, the Constitution, um, without being amended, may not permit the kinds of changes that are being considered. Lots of trial balloons Uh, floating around out there. All right, we're going to take a break. Portions of our program today are brought to you by Liberty Coin & Currency. When we return, we're going to switch gears and talk with Nate Pyle. He is a pastor and an author. His book is titled More Than You Can Handle, When Life's Overwhelming Pain Meets God's Overwhelming Grace. He speaks from a point of having suffered loss and recognizing that the phrase that is so often quoted, God will not give us more than we can handle, is misquoted and misunderstood we'll talk about that with him in just a few moments
1: you're listening to the georgine rice show podcast is aired on 93.9 kpdq
2: 35 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Now, maybe you've said it or maybe you've just heard it. God won't give you more than you can handle. It's a pretty common and oft-repeated sentiment in Christian circles. It's such a popular statement that many have been inadvertently come to believe uh, it's scriptural. Well, in his new book, More Than You Can Handle, pastor, author, and blogger Nate Pyle reminds readers of a hard truth. God actually does give his children more than they can handle alone thus inviting them to rely on him and his strength to see them through overwhelming times. While well, he delivers a relevant and fresh approach that encourages readers with the hope only God can give, especially in difficult and desperate circumstances. In More Than You Can Handle, he is honest about his own life and the suffering he and his family have encountered. He shows from Scripture that God's people are promised uh, more than they can bear with their own strength, which is a constant and loving invitation for god 's children to lie, to rely rather on him supernaturally he 's been given more than he can bear alone and learn from it uh, once he stopped pretending that he could in fact handle life on his own, and so many of us have had to do the same. Well, Nate Pyle is the husband of Sarah, dad of Luke, Evelyn, and Wesley. He serves as pastor of Christ's Community Church in Fishers, Indiana. He is the author of Man Enough, How Jesus Redefines Manhood, and blogs regularly at natepyle.com. He joins us today to talk about his latest book, More Than You Can Handle, When Life's Overwhelming Pain Meets God's Overwhelming Grace. Thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Hey, thanks for having me on,
2: Jordan. Well, this is a difficult subject. For those of us who have yet to suffer, we would prefer to think that perhaps we can somehow avoid it. For those who are in the midst of suffering, it can be overwhelming, and we sometimes uh, wrestle with God over what it means and whether or not we can endure it. You write, not just from a theoretical standpoint, you have lived through and with suffering in a way that has informed your understanding of what Scripture teaches and, and what God intends to do in and through us in that circumstance,
3: yeah, my wife and I uh, about six years ago we were, you know, trying to grow our family and we had, were running into some fertility issues and running into infertility. And so, you know, we did what people do at that point. We went to the doctors and got the tests done, and they came back very much inconclusive. And the doctors didn't understand what was going on. And you know, that was that was its own kind of frustration and, and, and somewhat disappointment. Uh, but what ended up happening that really entered into a difficult season for us was uh, what my wife we ended up getting a positive pregnancy result um, but very soon after we got that pregnancy result my wife began to just feel like something wasn't right we went in and got some testing and the doctors came back and they said uh, that they have, they couldn't tell hundred percent, but they were uh, they were thinking at that point that it was an ectopic pregnancy, meaning that the mm-hmm. that the uh, embryo didn't get planted in the uterus and but was in the fallopian tubes. Um, and they they encouraged us at that point to end the pregnancy, but my wife and I did not feel like we could do that at all based on a, on a suspicion. Um, and so we waited a few days hoping that uh, they were wrong and God would work and do something. Uh, But my wife ended up experiencing a lot of pain and bleeding. And we went back to the emergency room. They were able to confirm at that point that was an ectopic pregnancy. The pregnancy was not viable uh, and it it was at some risk to my wife. And so we ended up having to uh, make a difficult choice at that point to, you know, even though it wasn't viable, it was still a very difficult choice to end the pregnancy. And so that that really turned us down into a road of, of asking a lot of questions, like where is God in the midst of this? And, why does it feel like He's given us more than we can handle? Because I've, you know, as a pastor and someone who's grown up in the church, I've heard that phrase so many times. Um, and like you said in the intro, people think that it's scriptural, and it's and it's just not. And so I really began to wrestle with that and and, and bring that before the Lord to see what He would have to say.
2: Yeah. One of the things I appreciate about the book, More Than You Can Handle, is you do take on some tough questions. Um, why don't you step in and act, God? Did God cause my hurt to happen? Do I have enough faith to survive what I'm going through? Some of the very difficult questions from your own experience, from Scripture and from uh, from others. If the Bible doesn't say God will never allow you to suffer anything that you cannot uh, handle on your own, what does the Bible say about uh, suffering and how we get through it and how much we're um, permitted to bear.
3: Yeah, I, I think there's two things. One, when we think about suffering, so often what we as humans want is we want an explanation for our suffering, and we hope that the Bible is going to explain that or God is going to step in and say, well, this is why you, have to, you had to suffer. And while we may learn some lessons from our suffering, and maybe it even becomes apparent as to why we had to endure our trial— uh, there are many times in which we, we don't ever get that answer. And, and what we know about is from the Bible is that the Bible never gives a clear explanation for why suffering and pain and injustice uh, and evil persist even today. Uh, there, there's no explanation. Instead, what we're told through the Bible is that uh, in the midst of our trial, God will carry us through. So uh, an example I like to think of that really helps clarify this is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's a story that if you've grown up in the church are very familiar with where uh, they refuse to worship the king and, and they're thrown into the fiery furnace. And, and the reality is, is God being sovereign and all-powerful could have saved them from the furnace. He could have saved them from the trial. But instead, God doesn't save them from the trial, but saves them through the trial. And the same with, with Israel and Egypt and having to save them through the Red Sea. And even what we see with Jesus, that, Je- that Jesus offers salvation through death. And that's how we get new life. And so this is how we see God work more often than not, that He saves us through the difficulty. He meets us in the valley of the shadow of death. Um, and, and so what, what what we're promised is that no matter what we're going through, it is not more difficult than God can handle, and God will meet us and be present to us in a unique and intimate way in the midst of our suffering.
2: I want to return to that, the notion that God will allow us to be crushed under the weight of suffering, um, but rather that he intends that our suffering that we cannot bear alone was always intended to be borne, Uh, with Him rather than on our own? Because I think it's important um, to emphasize God's role in those those life-crushing circumstances and His intent for us going through them.
3: Yeah, I think one of the most insidious uh, aspects of that phrase, "God won't give you more than you can handle," you, yeah. <laughs> is that it puts the it puts all the onus on surviving and getting through the difficulty, and even maybe fixing the situation on you. Like the idea is, if you've been given this, then God assumes you can handle it, so you're on your own, and that just couldn't be farther from the truth. In fact, what we see in Scripture, if we look at the Apostle Paul, right, he's the guy who learns to be content in whatever situation he sings while he's in prison, and yet what he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 is that they endured so many trials and they were so difficult, he says this, that we despaired of life itself. And then he says, and we got to this point so that we could rely on Christ and his strength, and then later at the end of chapter, uh, or of 2 Corinthians, he says that in his weakness, right, and Paul, in Paul, in his weakness, uh, that's the opportunity at which you get to see Christ's strength in his life. And so if we never are allowed to be weak, if we never embrace our weakness in those times in which we are uh, confronted with our weakness and inability to, to change our circumstances, then we actually never have the gift of being able to see God at work in our lives mm-hmm. in some supernatural and wonderful ways.
2: Now, for you and your wife, when you're going through the most painful part of your suffering— um, how did you experience um, God's enabling power to endure uh, through your hardship?
3: Yeah, I think one of the things that was, was, was one of the greatest gifts to me was actually my congregation, my church. And I, that may sound cliche to some, but I think it was pretty unique for a pastor to be able to be completely honest about what was going on in his life and, and, and then to have the church meet me not as, as Nate the pastor and, and, and come around us like that, but as Nate the fellow a Christ follower who's in a difficult period, and they came around my wife and I and really supported us well. There was uh, one point where, where my my wife in particular was really dealing with some anxiety and some panic and was experiencing panic attacks, and so I, I I didn't share everything with my congregation right away, but I shared my with my elders, and and they came around and they prayed, and we had real honest conversations about what I was able to handle at that point in terms of. Uh, you know, getting my job requirements done, mm-hmm.
2: and, and what I was going to rely on
3: them, and, and they were such a support, and it just reminded me that the body of Christ really isn't the, is not the presence of Christ to us in this world, and so one of the graces that we experienced was the role of the church as the body of Christ during the midst of suffering, that those uh, who we call brother and sister really do have an important ministry when they mourn with those who mourn, and, and, and we experienced that firsthand.
2: And that is so important, because I think our tendency is we want to isolate. Uh, We're in pain, and so we want to hibernate to a place alone, and yet just the opposite is what we need. And God has provided for us a community of believers to help carry us through, to walk through with us um, in these difficult circumstances. And that was your experience.
3: Absolutely it was. You know, know, there's a time in which We have to admit that sometimes we pray all the prayers that we've got in us. We've used up all the words, and we need our brothers and sisters to come alongside of us and pray on our behalf. And there's times where we're going through things in which it's really difficult to have faith and to keep the faith, and we need people to have faith on our behalf, Uh, just as Moses needed
2: uh,
3: Aaron to hold up his arms while Joshua fought in the battle. So we need brothers and sisters to hold us up in the midst of uh, our difficulty uh, because sometimes sometimes what happens to us doesn't make sense, and sometimes it is difficult to, to see God, and so we need people to have faith around us. And that was absolutely our experience.
2: We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation with Nate Pyle. His book is titled, More Than You Can Handle, When Life's Overwhelming Pain Meets God's Overwhelming Grace. The book is published by Zondervan. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. is aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ.
2: Fifty one minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with Nate Pyle, pastor and author. His book is titled "More Than You Can Handle: When Life's Overwhelming Pain Meets God's Overwhelming." Grace. One of the things you point out in the book is the fact that the Bible is rife with lamenting, yet it's something most people don't hear much about in modern society. Can you talk a little bit about uh, lament and why it's important in difficult times and uh, to help us to recognize that it's there, that we shouldn't be surprised by it when we experience it in our own life, and that it can help us walk through in a way that uh, is is God-honoring and gives us the strength to endure?
3: Yeah, I think lament is so important when we find ourselves in the midst of, of those difficulties. And as you say, it's not something that we talk about much in modern times, but when we look through it with the Bible, we actually see that it's something that was very common, and we can see this most often in the, in the Psalms and in the, in the Book of Lamentations. We see this in Job and in his interaction and conversation with God, primarily before God speaks. Uh, but the, 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 the ancient practice of lament was simply a, a way of expressing uh, the totality of what you were ex- feeling and experiencing in a way I like to say this is bringing all of who you are all of what you're experiencing all the questions all the doubts all the frustrations and so we see that in the Psalms of you know how long O Lord or the you know have you abandoned me to my enemies as they encircle around me we see this in Job which is this is a line that I just resonated so much as my wife and I were walking through our difficulties uh, as in Job chapter, I think it's 30 or 31, but Job says, I stand here and all you do is look at me. As in this, God, you I, I know who you are. I know that you can see all that is happening and, and you see what's happening to me, but that's all you do. You're not acting on my behalf. And, and so the lament really starts by expressing that, expressing the doubts, expressing the questions, expressing the frustrations that, you know, God has not yet delivered on God's promises. Uh, but then the, the lament also expresses hope by placing the fulfillment of those promises at the feet of the one who's ultimately responsible for those promises being fulfilled, which is the sovereign God, right? If, if God is sovereign and if God is in the one who's in control, and if God is ultimately the only one who can bring us out of our difficulties, uh, then then it's right for us to wait and even hold God responsible for the fulfillment of his promise. And so the lament usually has a turn after it expresses all all of who all of who we are and all that we're going through, it expresses that to God. Uh, Then it turns and says, and you are God, and I'm waiting for all of who you are, God, to meet me in the midst of this difficulty. And I'm not going to walk away from you. I'm not going to abandon you, but I am going to wait for you to fulfill this promise, trusting that your word is good and you will fulfill it.
2: In More Than You Can Handle, you write about a time that um, prayer was hard for you because you were angry with God. I think sometimes suffering can lead to exhaustion, exasperation, and even anger. Um, what do you do with with that anger? And is it is there an appropriate anger? Uh, and how would one express that natural outgrowth of the exhaustion of suffering?
3: Yeah, I think you know. I think there's a right way and a wrong way to handle our anger, particularly as it relates to God. Uh, The way that I handled it was not so well, is that I I hid it. And I didn't even just hide it from God, because uh, obviously that's a fool's errand, but I hid it from myself as well, and it was something that I didn't even realize I had had. I stuffed it down because, you know, I'm a pastor, and I I prayed in my congregation and for people many times, but in my own personal prayer life, uh, it had pretty much diminished because I had these— emotions and these frustrations and this anger that I hadn't dealt with. And so the inappropriate way I think that we can handle our anger and our exhaustion is actually by by hiding it, by ignoring it, by pretending it's not there or even just keeping it from God. I think the right way to handle that is actually when we take that into the space between us and God. So that God then can can respond to, to our anger, that God can can either show us the ways in which He also shares our righteous shares anger, His righteous anger at the brokenness and the sin in the world that exists, uh, but it could also be a way in which God shows us how our anger is because we don't fully understand who God is, and this is what we see with Job. That Job, if you read through the Book of Job, particularly the first thirty-eight chapters, after you know Job is very clear that he is angry and upset and and feels like God has done him wrong. Uh, And God corrects that to the point that Job says, I've heard of you, but now I see you. And by Job expressing that anger with God and bringing that into the space between him and God, it actually fosters a new kind of intimacy with God uh, so that Job has has a stronger relationship on the outset.
2: Mm, That kind of transparency and honesty, we pretend that God is unaware of what's actually going on in the interior of our heart when he knows uh, when He knows it all. When it comes to our own suffering, we may think it's not as bad as someone else's. And I often hear people you know, discuss what how they're struggling or suffering and then say, well, I recognize it's not, as if to say that what they're experiencing is not valid compared to someone else's that might be quite different. What do you say um, when you uh, encounter people who feel the need to somehow minimize their suffering um, it, comparing it to others,
3: yeah. You know, what I always want to do is I want to legitimize it. I mean, I even had this as I as I wrote this book. You know, uh, you know. Uh, yes, my wife and I suffer, and I want to acknowledge that. But I can also point to multiple, many, many people who have suffered more than we have, or in which we, if we were to play the comparison game, I would lose. And that's the problem with the comparison game is that it's a game in which the house always wins. There's always someone who has suffered more than you. And and that can cause us to distance ourselves from our own humanity, our own uh, limits that we experience. It, it, It inhibits us from experiencing the goodness and the grace of God as we pull away from the places in which we really need to see God move in our lives. And by distancing ourselves from our humanity and, and limiting the ways in which God can work by not acknowledging just how much we actually are suffering, we actually are distancing ourselves from our fellow humans who, who maybe if we were to play the comparison game might say, you know, they're suffering more. But but, but we're distancing from them and losing out on the opportunity to empathize with them and to share comfort with them in the same way that we have been comforted. Uh, so I always want to encourage people, no matter what you're going through, whatever kind of suffering you are, whether you're experiencing, whether it's a, a little amount or a large amount, whether it's emotional or physical, whether it's spiritual or something else, like, own that, own that suffering, own that pain, own that disappointment, express it in healthy manners, bring that before God, let God meet you. Because in the, re- the redeeming part of, of of experiencing God's intimacy is that God will often use that to comfort somebody else.
2: Hmm. Now, so many people feel like there is no hope for them. Now, as someone who's been in the same place, what would you say to someone who needs to take the very first step uh, into the hope that only God can offer in the midst of suffering?
3: I think I think to be, begin with, uh, with reminding yourself through the study of Scripture the promises that God has spoken. Read those. Believe that God speaks those promises to you. And then begin the process of lament, entering into that prayer life where you express the, the, both the frustration and the hope that God will deliver on those promises. I, I think that's the first step, and sometimes that's a huge step. So maybe maybe a smaller step might be expressing those frustrations that you're experiencing with another person and letting others come inside and, and, and into your life and to walk alongside of you. I think we, we have to start with those small and then they're not small, but maybe they seem small and they seem insignificant. But those are the first steps that I encourage people to take. Remember the promises that God has spoken and don't try to carry this burden alone.
2: Yeah, yeah. Were you surprised um, to learn things about your faith as you were writing more than you can handle?
3: I, I really was. I really was. Uh, in fact, I was just having a conversation with my father last night about this and talking about what was it, it was like to you know, three years beyond this season of our life to reflect on it and to see the ways in which I had grown, to see the ways in which my, my faith had changed, my understanding of God had changed, because I'll be completely honest, for much of my life, it had been quite suburban. It was, you know, it was everything looked good, and it was relatively a life of comfort and ease, um, and, and, and in some ways, I thought that that's, you know, I, I knew this intellectually wasn't how faith worked. Like, faith wasn't something that protected you from the darkness of the world, uh, but but I think my functional belief kind of was in that place where I believed that faith in Jesus would be sort of like this insurance that pro- protects me from from suffering. Um, and, and what I found is that that's not the case at all, that, you know, the sun rises on the righteous and the unrighteous, and the tragedy befalls the unrighteous and the righteous. And, and so... Uh, I, I found rather uh, the God who meets us in the suffering, the God who, who knows our suffering, and the God who suffered in Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that I've come to love most is the Apostles' Creed. The one We th- you know three things about Jesus' life. He's born of the Virgin, he, suffered, he died, and he suffered under Pontius Pilate. He suffered just like us. God yeah. came and embraced the whole human experience and suffered with, with us like us.
2: Nate Pyle, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thank you for having me.
2: Once again, the book is titled More Than It, More Than You Can Handle, published by Zondervan. News and traffic up next.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after five o'clock is our time. Later this hour, we'll talk with Tom Jipping. He is the deputy director of the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. He's also a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk about a proposed piece of legislation. Uh, it's called the Do No Harm Act that would dilute the substance of religious freedom. Enjoyed since uh, the 1700s in this uh, in this country. Anyway, the left really wants to give kids the right to vote. And in fact, Nancy Pelosi endorsed the idea. The idea is so popular that a majority of House Democrats voted in favor of lowering the voting age to 16. 16. Well, why would Pelosi and others want to give high school children hardly known for deep wisdom and sound judgment a vote? Now, granted, many adults are not necessarily known for deep wisdom and sound judgment, but it's more likely that they might have some. Anyway, a new poll perhaps demonstrates why. Well, the Harris poll released exclusively by Axios shows that roughly half of young Americans say that they would prefer living in a socialist society. It also reveals that many young Americans think the government should provide free health care, education, and medicine, among many other things. This is very much in line with a poll released in late 2017 by the victims of Communism Memorial Fund that found similar support for communism among young people along with widespread ignorance about what communism is. Most of those surveyed couldn't define communism or socialism, for that matter. Many believe, for instance, that President George W. Bush killed more people than Joseph Stalin, the ruthless Soviet dictator whose regime murdered tens of millions. These are students who presumably have gone through public school. The fact is, socialism attracts widespread support from millennials and members of Generation Z, who at the same time uh, have little understanding of or about socialism. Now, it's no wonder what uh, groups are desperately trying to find Um, that they are, in fact, trying to find ways to get children to vote or Uh, be used as useful tools for an agenda, which now appears to include outright socialism. And while young people embrace at least the word socialism in disproportionately high numbers, Americans as a whole find the term toxic as far as who they'd be willing to vote for. According to a recent NBC Wall Street Journal poll, just 25% of respondents found socialist to be a desirable trait for a presidential candidate. It was among the least liked trait in the entire poll. Perhaps America's older cohorts simply have a better understanding Understanding of what socialism is, having lived through the Cold War, faced the existential crisis of the Soviet threat to our country. Well, young people born after the fall of the Berlin Wall have less of a real-world example to draw on a, uh, in relation to the evil of socialism created uh, for a society that adopts it in total. It's clear that the um, in the debate over socialism, education is where we failed. A generation or generations of young Americans are falling under the impression that socialism, whatever they think it is, will bring more prosperity. History, of course, demonstrates the opposite. The real America is so prosperous, and why it remains a place where so many people around the globe aspire to live is because it rejected these ruthlessly collectivist doctrines. Our nation held tightly to the ideas of the rule of law, of private property and the Constitution, all of which do far more for the common citizen than the doctrines of socialism, which put absolute power in the hands of very few. Yet our education system is failing to transmit those basic ideas to upcoming generations. It's a failure that the country desperately needs to change if we are to remain a free country. And the truth is, that's really a large question. Will we remain a free country? If we don't, it will be by choice, but I think out of ignorance. In a recent survey of how Americans perform on a basic citizenship test, most failed and young people fared by far worse. This ties back into the current debate over voting age. It's a good thing that young people participate in politics, develop an instinct for informed citizenship, and take the future of the country seriously. However, we shouldn't... um, Well, fetishize youth as itself an advantage, especially when it comes with such a disturbing lack of understanding about history and civics. The left has a sort of um, Rousseauian concept of young people as being free from the shackling norms of civilization, as being capable of drawing from wisdom unclouded by the built up prejudice of experience. But the demands of citizenship aren't fulfilled by mere youthful energy. They require an education in civics, an understanding of our institutions, a certain independence of thought and action. That's not coerced in the structures, uh, perhaps, of public education informed from one side of the political continu- continuum. At the same time, progressives demand the lowering of the voting age. We increasingly infantilize young Americans who are not really seen as adults until the age of 26, long after most graduate, coll- uh, most graduate college. rather, From smoking to gun ownership, progressives are stripping the rights and life choices of young adults. Meanwhile, they demand that we put increasing power in the hands of 16-year-olds to determine our legal. And our laws. This has things entirely backward. Noah Rothman said in his uh, commentary magazine article At a time when society seems inclined to indulge young people's desire to languish in an extended twilight childhood, it's revealing that voting is the only adult responsibility for which Democrats think children are prepared. When it comes to just about any other condition of maturity, Democrats seem to think the proper course is to exact opposite. So lowering the voting age is both reckless in its ethos to put voting power in the hands of people who are not ready for responsible citizenship, yet also is reduced to a mere palliative. Democracy is expanded as liberty recedes, making democratic participation worth little more than a pat on the back. And while this may seem fine for generations raised in the milieu of the self-esteem movement, it's hardly a recipe for strengthening the republic or produce better leaders. Lowering the voting age, which at 18 is already quite low, degrades the positive of democracy in America and turns it into the sad caricature of mob rule that the founders feared. Hmm. Let's do more to create responsible adults and citizens rather than perpetually apply democracy in places where it is unwarranted. Let's work on maturing individuals who have a sense of civil society, understand the structure of our nation before uh, suggesting that the... uh, Underpinnings be completely destroyed and then step in and chart the course for the future. Well, Colorado has become the latest state and the first swing state to join a group pledging to elect presidents based on who wins the national popular vote. Again, not amending the Constitution, but sort of doing an end run around The Electoral College, 11 other states in the District of Columbia have signed on to the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. It's an agreement that requires those states to select their presidential electors based on who wins the most individual votes nationwide, regardless of which candidate wins in the state. Colorado Governor Jared Polis signed the bill on Friday, bringing the state into the compact. It only goes into effect once states uh, with at least 270 electoral votes, the number needed to win the presidential election, have signed on. And while the addition of Colorado brings the electoral count of states in the uh, compact to 181, reaching 270 points um, before the 2020 election appears unlikely, at least at this point. Supporters say the concept would create a fairer basis for presidential elections by essentially going around the Electoral College and creating a system where each individual vote counts the same. It would also motivate potential voters in non-swing states to come out to polls, supporters say. And although Colorado has trended more solidly Democratic in recent elections, the state represents the first traditional swing state to join the effort. Every other state in that compact has voted for the Democratic presidential candidate in every election since at least 1992. Getting a battleground state like Colorado is important for us, says Barry Fathom. He's the president of the nonprofit National Popular Vote, Inc. The other states that have signed on since 2007 are California, Connecticut, Hawaii, Illinois, Massachusetts, Maryland, New Jersey, New York, Rhode Island, Vermont, Washington, and the District of Columbia. There are constitutional issues. We don't have time to get into it right now. And the overall support for a national popular vote dipped after the 2016 presidential election, especially among Republicans, according to Gallup. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we'll be back.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast, it is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: 20 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Later this hour, we'll talk with Tom Jipping. We'll talk about a bill that seeks to dilute the substance of religious freedom. It's called the Do No Harm Act. We'll explain what it is and why I'm concerned. And I think you should be, too. Former Obama White House counsel and Clinton-linked attorney Greg Craig may soon be charged by the Justice Department for engaging in illegal unregistered overseas lobbying in a case initially probed by special counsel Robert Mueller, a development that would make him the first Democrat to face prosecution with this long-running Russia investigation. The case centers on lobbying work that Craig performed in 2012 for the Russian-backed president of Ukraine, Viktor Yankovych while uh, Craig was a partner in the law firm uh, Skaden, Arps, Slate, Meager, and Flom. Well, Craig allegedly never registered as a foreign agent under the U.S. law known as the Foreign Agents Registration Act, or FARA, which requires lobbyists to declare publicly if they represent foreign leaders, governments, or their political parties. FARA violations were only rarely prosecuted until Mueller took aim at uh, Paul Manafort, President Trump's former a campaign chairman for his lobbying work in Ukraine. Manafort, who connected Craig and Jankovic, had been convicted on numerous bank and tax fraud charges and was separately accused of FARA violations as well. He was sentenced earlier this month to approximately seven years in prison. Craig left Skaden uh, last year as his... um, Uh, Work with Manafort became public. In January, he agreed to cooperate with the Department of Justice registration requirements and paid $4.6 million in a settlement to avoid a criminal prosecution – We've learned much from this incident and are taking steps to prevent anything similar from happening again, the firm said in a statement at that time. Well, as with Manafort's case, there's no indication that Craig improperly colluded with foreign government while he was serving in any official capacity. Craig worked as White House counsel from 2009 to 2010 and previously worked in the Clinton administration on impeachment matters. Mueller referred the uh, Craig case to New York federal prosecutors apparently because it fell outside his mandate of determining whether the Trump campaign coordinated with Russia. And Special Counsel Mueller began investigating President Donald Trump's former lawyer Michael Cohen for fraud in his personal business dealings and for potentially acting as an unregistered foreign agent at least nine months before the FBI agents in New York raided his home and office, according to documents that were released earlier today. The series of heavily redacted uh, search warrant applications and other documents revealed new details about the timing and the depth of the probe into Cohen, who ultimately pled guilty to tax fraud, bank fraud, campaign finance violations, and lying to Congress. The records show the inquiry into Cohen had been going on since July of 2017, far longer than previously known and that a big part of it was a focus on uh, Cohen's taxi businesses and misrepresentations he made to banks as part of a scheme to relieve himself of some $22 million in debt he owed on taxi medallion loans. Prosecutors were also interested in money that was flowing into Cohen's bank accounts from consulting contracts he'd signed after Trump won office. Some of those payments were from companies with strong foreign ties, including a Korean aerospace company and Columbus Nova, an investment management firm affiliated with Russian billionaire Victor Veckelsberg or something very like that. Well, Cohen was ultimately not charged with failing to register as a foreign agent. Many sections of the records dealing with the campaign finance violations that he committed when he paid two women to pay uh, to stay silent rather about alleged Affairs They had with uh, uh, Trump were redacted. A judge ordered those sections to remain secret after prosecutors said they were still investigating cam- uh, campaign finance violations. Lonnie Davis, a- an attorney for Cohen, said the release of the search warrant furthers his interest in continuing to cooperate and providing information and the truth about Donald Trump and the Trump organization to law enforcement and to Congress. The FBI raided Cohen's Manhattan home and office last April, marking the first public sign of a criminal investigation that threatened the Trump presidency and netted Cohen a three-year prison sentence he's scheduled to start serving in May. And several ISIS terrorists tied to a January suicide bombing in Syria that killed four Americans were captured by U.S.-backed forces. That's according to a defense official confirming earlier today. It wasn't immediately known how many ISIS fighters had been captured in all, the official said, adding the details are still vague. A defense official told Reuters the number of people detained was in the single digits, while another official told the news agency several people were detained in February A group of suspects believed to be involved in January 16 um, um, bombing that killed several U.S. and SDF uh, servicemen were captured following technical surveillance by our forces. The outcome of the ongoing investigation will be shared at a later time. That's a tweet from Mustafa Bali, the spokesperson for the U.S.-backed Syrian Democratic fighters. And there's a great power in a name. Nate Jackson points out in the book of Genesis, God, the creator, names the first man Adam and then empowers Adam to name not only every living creature, but his wife as well. God changed Abram's name to Abraham and Saul's name to Paul when those changes reflected a new relationship. The power of names works the other way too, even in fiction. It's why in J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter series, the primary villain is regularly referred to as he who shall not be named. So what do we make of the Um, ubiquity of the names and faces of mass murderers. Well, that was the question when New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern asserted Tuesday that notoriety was a primary motivator for the fascist psychopath who attacked two mosques last week. He obviously had a range of reasons for committing this atrocious terrorist attack, Ardern said. Lifting his profile was one of them, and that's something that we can absolutely deny him. She added, he is a terrorist, he is a criminal, he is an extremist. But he will, um, when I speak, be nameless, she continued. And to others, I implore you, speak the names of those who were lost rather than the name of the man who took them. He may have sought notoriety, but we in New Zealand will give him nothing, not even his name. Bravo to her, I would say. Well, it's a thoughtful sentiment and approach born of research and the the profiles of these types of assailants. They want attention, says Mary Mascara. She's a forensic nurse in uh, Binghamton University or Binghamton University. A University in New York. After studying numerous such mass shootings, she concludes that's why you see them wanting to have a bigger head count, a bigger body count to try to outdo the last one or to do something that's going to cause more of a rise. Well, American media outlets that depend on eyeballs for advertising revenue dutifully comply, plastering the names and faces of assailants across our TV screens 24-7. Socially awkward and ignored young men commit atrocities and suddenly find the fame they desired. The New Zealand attacker went so far as to broadcast his murderous rampage on Facebook Live. According to the Associated Press, Facebook said it removed 1.5 million versions of the video during the first 24 hours. That's an astounding level of success for a man who craved attention. On the other hand, in an order uh, for justice to be done and even for the public to be informed, names must at times be given. That balance is something we in our humble shop have strived to maintain Uh, When covering such events, name to inform when necessary, but deny notoriety. Unfortunately, the tide is against that trend here. I don't know if you've been following what's happening across the country, but the torrent of water from heavy rainfall spawned by last week's bomb cyclone, as they called it, and snowmelt. Uh, that led uh, to devastating flooding across several Midwestern states, including swamping a major Air Force base in Nebraska. That's key to the nation's nuclear attack response. About one third of um, Offutt Air Force Base, including offices, hangars, nearly 3,000 feet of uh, bases, 11,700 foot runway is underwater due to flooding from the Missouri River south of Omaha. Spokesperson from uh, Uh, The area tech sergeant Rachel Blake told the Omaha World Herald that 60 buildings, most of the uh, south end of the base, have been damaged, including about 30 that were uh, completely inundated with as much as eight feet of water. Airmen from the 55th wing have been uh, uh, filling thousands of sandbags in the round the clock effort to fortify facilities, but were forced to give up after filling 235,000 of them and preparing 460 flood barriers. It was a lost cause, and they had to give up. Well, the Midwest is bracing for more unprecedented flooding that was shattered to record high river levels in places all across the Midwest. And uh, we certainly need to remember them and uh, opportunities to help with the recovery, I'm certain, will reveal themselves uh, very shortly. Speaking of which, one homeowner right here in the Portland area whose basement was flooded over the weekend said that he expected the damage to cost about ten dollars to $15,000. The basement was carpeted, had a couch, television, washing machine, dryer. His insurance turned his claim down. Well, most homeowners' insurance don't cover flooding, and it's uncommon for homeowners outside areas prone to flood to carry additional flood insurance. Now those affected are waiting to see if the city of Portland will pay for the damage. We're talking about the uh, water main that broke in Portland. The city's risk management division handles liability claims. The Water Bureau spokesperson said it's not clear what caused the rupture, but likely it was a combination of old age and pressure due to freezing and thawing at the ground uh, this winter. Well, many of the water mains under Portland streets are old, uh, so this could happen to anyone. Registration on or use of... um, uh, insurance that might cover that might uh, be worth rethinking, uh, given the age of some of these uh, systems that run through the streets of the city of Portland.: Thirty minutes after five o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Tom Jipping, so stay with us.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. In an opinion analysis piece, my next guest writes about an effort to dilute the substance of religious freedom. It is called, or so-called, the Do No Harm Act. That, of course, is the maxim from Hippocrates, uh, and it has universal appeal. I mean, who wants to do harm? Well, it's being used to title a bill that would do great harm to one of our most cherished natural rights, and that is religious freedom. Tom Jipping is the deputy director of the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies, and Senior Legal Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us today.
4: Well, thanks for having me.
2: Well, what an innocuous title, Do No Harm. Who could be opposed to that? And yet, uh, this uh, so-called act uh, would do just that. As you point out in your headline, it would dilute the substance of religious freedom. Perhaps we can begin by talking about uh, religious freedom, the, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, and where this bill is coming from.
4: Sure. The the religious freedom, of course, uh, is central to the establishment and the character of of the United States. Uh, There were laws in the colonies long before the United States was even born, protecting not just the freedom of belief, not just the freedom to worship, but the free exercise of religion. Uh, the, The meaning of religious freedom has been much broader and more comprehensive in the United States than it is most other places around the world. And the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which was passed in 1993, is a law that that responds to that understanding of religious freedom. It makes it very difficult for the government to undermine the exercise of someone's religion. And it ought to be difficult because that's such a fundamental right. So the, the nice thing about the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, though, is that it applies across the board. It applies the same standard to every situation. It doesn't pick and choose which religious practices are to be preferred over others so that courts can then sort out these conflicts between religion and government when they come along. It was a—it literally is the most important statute in the history of our country protecting religious freedom. The Do No Harm Act, which was introduced by Senator Kamala Harris of California, would actually... Uh, take the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and narrow it down so that it wouldn't even apply to huge areas of government uh, action and government policymaking. Everybody knows that uh, issues like uh, abortion and, and birth control as well as gay rights are the, the big uh, priorities for the liberal political agenda, and these are areas that they want to protect And that's where the name comes from. I mean, it sounds, as you say, kind of innocuous, but they're giving us a completely different understanding Mm -hmm. of what it means to exercise religion. They're saying that your exercise of your religion can result in harm to me when I don't get what I want from you. And therefore, to do no harm is to tell you, you may exercise your religion the way your freedom might want you to.
2: Now, this shouldn't come as a complete surprise under the previous administration. Under President Obama, he made reference to the freedom of worship, which was a sort of shorthand for narrowing this notion of what religious freedom or the free exercise of religion uh, is. And there was concern at that time. So this this isn't the, a new idea in particular. And yet this would codify uh, for the nation what religious freedom is and what it is not. Um, Under the law, you point out that uh, laws or regulations in many areas would be completely exempt from the religious freedom restoration uh, standard that government could and almost certainly would completely ignore any impact on religious freedom. And that one of those areas involves access to information about or referral for provision of or coverage for any health care item or service. So this would have a, a sweeping impact on what we have uh, known to be the free exercise of religion in this country?
4: Yeah, your the, the provision that you just mentioned uh, is an important one because this, this responds to the Supreme Court's Hobby Lobby decision where the issue in that case, and that was a case involving the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, uh, that case resulted in a decision that uh, even a corporation can exercise its religion and if the government is going to require a a religious employer to provide birth control, for example, uh, it it has to do so only if that's a compelling purpose, the most important justification for what the government wants to do, and it has to do it in a way that's absolutely necessary. That's how it, it really keeps a tight standard on what the government is doing. This would completely change that. This would exempt anything that the government wants to do with regard to anything related to health care or abortion or contraception or birth control and and then the government could force even religious employers uh, to provide anything that the government tells them to provide and religious employers wouldn't even have an argument they couldn't even go into court to to argue that this violates my religious belief and and I have a right to practice my religion. It completely turns the tables on the understanding of religious freedom that we've had in our country.
2: So there would be no standing to argue in favor of what had traditionally been the understanding of religious freedom in this country.
4: Yeah. You know, but as I said about the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, that the genius of that law, and I, and I worked for 15 years for Senator Orrin Hatch of Utah, who was the Republican uh, author of that law, uh, the genius of that law uh, is that it doesn't pick and choose. It doesn't say who's going to win and who's going to lose in these cases. It simply sets a standard, a standard that says religious freedom is very important. And, and the Religious Freedom Restoration Act said that all government laws and regulations in the future have to take that into account. It requires that government be mindful of the impact of what it's doing on religious freedom. This would change the Religious Freedom Restoration Act so that government could ignore religious freedom altogether in all of these different areas so that government could do anything that it wants and trample anybody's... Uh, freedom of religion in all of these different areas.
2: You write that the Harris Bill stands on its head, the substance and significance of religious freedom as it's been understood since the 17th century. It would signal that religious freedom is no more important and, in many cases, far less important than a garden variety political agenda. And it would turn RIFRA, or the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, the most important law protecting religious freedom inside out. Now, when the uh, Religious Freedom Restoration Act was passed in 1993, my understanding is there were only three dissenters in either the House or the Senate, and that some of the sponsors of the bill uh, that's been introduced by Kamala Harris uh, were actually signatories or were sitting in uh, in Congress at the time.
4: Yeah. Can you believe that? The, the bill that actually became the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and was signed into law was actually introduced by a House member named Charles Schumer, Hmm. who is now now the the minority leader of the United States Senate. There were senators who actually were in the Senate in 1993, voted for the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, and now they're co-sponsors of a law that would gut it. And you're right. There were three votes against it in the Senate, and it passed unanimously in the House. That's how broad and significant the principle is uh, behind this law and and we're we're in a completely different arena today where religious freedom is no longer a fundamental natural right it's no longer you know literally an animating principle for our country now it's just optional it can be tossed aside Uh, at any time and at the whim of a political majority.
2: And I want to mention that Ron Wyden, who is one of the signatories, was in the Senate in 1998. He voted for the International Religious Freedom Act, and that law declared that the right to freedom of religion undergirds the very origin and existence of the United States. Uh, Again, it's breathtaking to consider where he stood at that time in 1998 and what he has signed on to in 2019.
4: Yeah, and people may not uh, may not be aware. It's not just uh, the First Amendment that protects the right to freely exercise your religion. The United States has passed numerous laws protecting religious freedom uh, in different contexts, but it's also signed on to international agreements. You know, right after World War II, in in the the uh, face of what had happened in Nazi Germany. The United States signed on, for example, to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which declared as a universal fundamental right, again, not just freedom of worship, but the right to, to actually practice your mm-hmm. religion in a way that you choose. That's been for, you know, since, yeah, since the 17th century. I mean, for literally for almost 400 years, it has been the understanding and the, the priority that's given to religious freedom. And in just, you know, 20, 20 years or so, we're seeing all of that, the foundations of all of that crumble, and we're at risk of losing what has been our most important right.
2: The chief sponsor is a Democrat 2020 Presidential Hopeful. Uh, the others who have signed on or are sponsoring this bill are significant names. From your perspective, what is the prospect in 2019, looking back to 1993, of this moving forward successfully? Even though it's disturbing enough that it's been put into the form of a bill, uh, a, a proposal that's being considered, what do you think the prospects are?
4: Well, it's certainly not going to move in the Senate. Um, you know, it's kind of a free for all over in the House now with a Democratic majority, and it seems like like you know different Democrats are trying to kind of outdo each other mm-hmm. in terms of how outrageous they can be. It's not going to go anywhere in the Senate, but it does present those of us who do believe in these principles and who do cherish the heritage of this country this presents a great opportunity to to open a vigorous debate and a vigorous defense and a clarification of what religious freedom is and what it has meant in for the united states you know there are countries all over the world that are, are are striving to achieve a degree of religious freedom that you know we have always had in this country, uh, they're they're trying to to shake off oppression, and they know that the freedom of religion is is you know critical to the dignity of human beings. And, to, and here in the United States, where we've been blessed with that for so long, it's like our leaders are just treating it as it's just this optional, insignificant little thing. And we have an opportunity to to confront that and hopefully to change it.
2: Yes, absolutely. Well, I appreciate your uh, your writing about it, for talking with us here today, and we certainly will continue that conversation and to vigorously follow this uh, this piece of legislation. Tom Jipping, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Again, Tom Jipping is Deputy Director of the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies, Senior Legal Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast, is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Just thinking back to the 17th century, what a luxury we have had in which the country has embraced universally, essentially, that the free exercise of religious religious freedom is a value, a virtue that underpins every other value in this country but it may not hold. And that is the challenge for the 21st century believer who has the opportunity to influence the course of the nation. We're going to continue to make this an issue of discussion in the days ahead. I also wanted to mention a, um, a new Barna study that focuses on Generation Z. I know it's difficult to know where are the lines, who's Z, who's Y, who's X, you know, what, what are these different groups? But uh, these are the young people today. Um, Barna's Generation Z research, they uh, point out, demonstrates that the the world in which this generation is coming of age is one that stands apart from that of their parents and grandparents. No big news there. I think we've known that. But the post-truth world, as they put it, they inhabit, no longer shares the same moral principles or societal values, leading to a more relativistic worldview among teens and a growing religious apathy. Christianity today has less influence on Generation Z than in any previous generation. Through Barna's other research, we see that parents, especially engaged Christian parents, are eager for their children to develop a lasting faith Faith, yet many lack clarity on how to discipline their children well in a decidedly post-Christian context. Building on these findings, Barna in partnership with Cardis, a faith-based think tank, recently interviewed 650 church leaders, Protestant and Catholic, about the factors influencing spiritual formation and development. It's certainly worth reading. I'll put a link on the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page. Uh, we found that although they agree that spiritual formation begins in the home and continues in the church, the perceived influence of school is often either disproportionate or unaccounted for. The study points to a possible disconnect among church, home, and school relationships, as well as the need for new conversations and partnerships for addressing spiritual formation in the current context. And then just a few uh, uh, of their findings. Church leaders from all stripes are in agreement when it comes to where the responsibility lies for a child's spiritual formation and development. And no, the answer was not Sunday school. They universally agree it should start with parents. 99% of Uh, Protestant pastors, along with 96% of Catholic priests, ranked parents number one. I would say Scripture does as well, followed by the church at 92% among Protestants. Um, uh, leaders, uh, they ranked it number two, 77% of Catholic leaders. Seven in ten Protestant pastors, or 70%, ranked the Christian community third, and a similar proportion ranked schools fourth in the chain of responsibility. Although schools, if you're talking about the public sector, bears no responsibility. Catholic priests rank the church's responsibility slightly lower than do Protestant leaders and place greater responsibility with schools. Catholic and Protestant clergy alike agree that government and society in general bear the least responsibility for children's spiritual formation uh, again this is the context in which this younger generation is uh, growing up and the challenge for adults who want to influence and um have some impact on this generation and their relationship with the gospel and understanding of it and regard for uh for it um have uh, certainly have their challenges cut out for them. Whether or not we continue in the context of the free exercise of religion, how government favors the notion that this is a right that is embedded in our, uh, not only in our Constitution, but is embedded in our, our core principles, that uh, will be the ongoing challenge. Uh, this Do No Harm Act we talked about in our last segment is just one example of the uh, the direction that our country seems to be going. And again, we'll continue to Uh, This conversation on Wednesday, we're going to talk with Lorraine Varela. She is the author of planned from the start, joy, forgiveness, grace, comfort, hope. Uh, This book is connected to the uh, uh, the movie about an unplanned pregnancy that resulted in an abortion that failed. Uh, And we'll talk with uh, Lorraine about uh, how, although uh, her life was not planned by her parents, there was a plan for her. She'll be joining us on Wednesday. It's part of the Romans 828 Redemption Press Project. And on Thursday, um, we're working on some things. In fact, James, we need to talk about that. And on Friday, of course, we're going to lighten things up. Uh, Tomorrow, by the way, is the first day of spring. And it looks like we're going to have spring-like weather that we'll all enjoy as a consequence. But anyway, the later part of the week, uh, we will certainly lighten up. And my... um, my plan is that we'll do that for both hours of the show, and I think James might be joining me in studio for that as well. So that's kind of what's happening for the remainder of this week. I want to thank James Blind for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Once again, uh, you can uh, access the two articles that I mentioned in these last two segments on the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page, so do check that out. Have a great night.
1: Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast.